shame can also be a helpful tool. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about Jackson, Mississippi, um, a city that's a, a microcosm of America's continued racism and, and countless forms, whether, you know, the pushing of this Capitol Police expansion or the clean water crisis and on and on and on. The church is implicated in much of that because, you know, we know in the American South, uh, the population and percentage as it comes to churchgoers, um, you know, in, in many regards, I think the last couple of years have been fruitful in the number of conversations that have taken place when it comes to these things. And yet so many people don't want to talk about it because there is a sense of shame that comes with having to talk about it. So how, how can shame maybe be a helpful tool? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Jasmine Holmes. Jasmine is a teacher of humanities and Latin. She's authored several books, including contributing to Identity Theft, My Heritage, and Carved in Ebony. She has a new book, Never Cast Out, which will be the focus for our conversation today. Jasmine, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. All right. I have to go to the most difficult question of all. Why Latin? Because I was homeschooled. And so (laughs) it's one of our secret little tricks that I would say like 70% of us have. And um, I actually didn't enjoy teaching Latin, but I taught at classical schools. And so whenever they'd ask, like, is there anything else that you can do? Like any other gap you can fill? I would always say Latin and I would always end up teaching it. (laughs) I took, um, so like in my uh, magnet high school, we had to take, um, I think two years of languages and I was like, oh, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to do Latin. It was the worst experience of my life. Like, I just I just didn't get it. And the other thing that comes to mind was um, our Latin teacher, I guess, you know, I remember to this day, she would keep a flask in her uh, desk. And like oh, in the no. middle of class, she would wink at us and like pour into her coffee mug. And uh, I think I think she passed all of us just so she could keep her secret unto herself. So uh, what yeah. an experience yeah wow <laughs> but I, I did go on to other languages you know I did Greek and Hebrew and uh, a little bit of Spanish a little bit of French but uh, yeah Latin was just not my jam yeah it's it, 
you have to really have a great teacher. Um, I don't know that I was ever great, but um, yeah, kind of was aware that it's not the most fun thing. And so tried to like make the class more fun. Well, you know, I always like to take the time to, if we do have anybody who's an educator on here, I, I come from a family of educators and I know just how taxing that experience is. So um, why teaching for you? Um, and, and, and thank you at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm actually not teaching right now. It's been, this is, I'm going into my second year um, out of the classroom and I cry about it every August because I miss it so much. Um, but I think, so my dad is a professor, my mom is a teacher. And so growing up in a family of educators, it was just kind of a foregone conclusion that someday I'd be a teacher too. Um, it was always an aspiration of mine along with being a writer. And so when I graduated from um, college with my English major, it was kind of the logical next step for me. Hmm. Lastly, um, and we were talking about this before uh, recording is um, you're in Jackson, Mississippi, um, mm -hmm. a wonderful town, Jackson, but also, you know, Jackson uh, continues to be at the center of some of the most um, challenging aspects of where we continue to be as a society. Um, mm -hmm, and I wonder mm -hmm. if you'd be willing to, to speak into any of those things that you're seeing um, as you're a resident of Jackson and experiencing those things on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. I mean, that's why I'm not a teacher right now is because living in Jackson, we've been on the cusp of a lot of, um, I've always taught in more conservative leaning Christian environments. And so um, as a history teacher, which is the niche that I kind of fell into um, and trying to teach American history, you know, just started to be viewed with a lot of suspicion, um, started to be giving a lot of like litmus tests. And um, I stepped out of the classroom um, in, uh, let's see, yeah, it was the spring of 2021 was my last time in the classroom. And so it things just kind of escalated from there. Um, and I know that like the spotlight is very much on Florida right now and DeSantis when it comes to education, but we definitely felt that here in Jackson as well. That's where I felt it the most was in education. You know, as, as we think through these things, the reality is, um, you know, we cannot separate um, kind of these cultural moments and the church's involvement in it. Um, you know, in many ways, um, the, the Southern church has continued to perpetuate um, so many different forms of, of systemic racism. What, what part do you imagine the church can play in maybe taking alternative approach to some of these things that we're seeing pushed by state legislatures? I think being involved is a huge step. Knowing what's going on would be the first step. Um, for me personally, you know, being the mom of three small children, one uh, who has special needs, it just is so hard to stay up to date on everything. Um, but just trying to, you know, even if it's just like diversifying my Instagram feed so that I'm following people who are talking about things that I can then look into. Um, I use ResistBot to like write emails to my local legislators when possible. Um, I just became, I just joined the Friends of the Library here in Jackson because I want to be involved in conversations about books that are being banned in school li school libraries. And so just getting involved in the ways that are 
manageable for you um and knowing how to push the boundaries of what is manageable sometimes like when possible um do I have time to be on the board uh on the school board of my son's school I don't technically have time to be doing that but I also really care about the future of my son's education and so I make the time well I I'd love for us to settle in there, but I know we're also here to talk about your new book, Never Cast Out. Uh, This book focuses on how the gospel puts an end to stories of shame. You wrote, shame has always been a background noise in my life, a low or persistent hum, a companion who is more frenemy than friend. But as I grew into a womanhood, that low hum became a din. Um, Walk us through your experience uh, that led to writing this book. Well, I actually came to um, B&H with another book idea. So um, in 2022, no, 2021, I released a book called Carved in Ebony. Um, It was about 10 Black women from American history who have shaped us. And then in this fall, I'm releasing another book, um, again, about Black Christian church history in America. So this book kind of falls in a really interesting place. And it's because originally I went to B&H about carbs and ebony and was like, Hey, I'm thinking about writing this book. I want to talk about these 10 women. I want to talk about like this era, the civil war era of history and just kind of the church in this era and all these things. And, um, I really wanted to work with Ashley Gorman, an editor at B&H. And she had, um, she said, you know, I'm not sure it'll be the best fit for us. It may be a better fit for our academic press, but I'm not an academic. So we kind of did a little back and forth and she goes, well, I, even though this book is not going to be a good fit, I have another idea for you. And I remember telling my editor when we went into the process, I was like, she's going to ask me to write a book about biblical womanhood and I'm going to say no, but I love Ashley. So I'm going to listen. Um, but we're going to this meeting together and we're saying no. Uh, and so my agent was like, okay, well, good to know. Like, thank you for keeping me abreast. And we get in the meeting and Ashley says, you know, I've been reading a lot of your writing. Um, at the time I was writing a column um, called Woman Enough for a publication called Fathom Mag. And it focused on, it was biblical womanhood adjacent, right? It was kind of like talking about the ways in which the concept of biblical womanhood has been used to basically shame women like me um, from very young ages. And so I thought that she wanted me to write a book about that. And I was like, a column is one thing, a book is another, I'm not going to do it. And she goes, well, actually, I- I've I've been seeing a through line in all of your writing for years And that through line is really a struggle with shame. And Ashley just has this way of making connections and seeing things. And she presented me with this idea. And I don't think that I would have ever written this book apart from Ashley, just being like, hey, I see this in you. I want to confirm that it's something that the Lord is working on in your life. And I think that you should write a book about it. I wonder if you'll define for us what you mean by shame of course you know it's like you even listen to the book kind of like the the dictionary definition of shame but what, what do you mean by shame the bad feeling the feeling of not belonging the feeling of wanting to hide um the feeling of when so when i was 14 years old um i was in this piano competition and um it involved I think 14 of us all playing the same song on stage in sets. So in seven sets of duets, all playing the same song. And so it would be this huge like concert and our parents would come. We do it at the local community college and we all would wear the same thing. All the girls had the same dress. All the boys had the same tux and it was just a huge thing. And again, homeschooled. So like big event in my life. Um, And so I was sitting in the front row waiting to go up for our turn. And my mom comes to me and she goes, I need you to come to the bathroom with me. And I was like, I have 
really busy right now. I can't. She's like, it's really, it's an emergency. You need to come. And I came and she told me that my dress was on backwards. Again, we're all wearing the exact same dress. It has this row of buttons down the back and my row of buttons is down the front and everybody has seen me and I'm on the front row of this huge auditorium and I have to go to the bathroom, flip my dress around and go back and sit with my dress corrected. And for me, shame, like the definition of shame is the immediate feeling that I had right after my mom told me my dress is on backwards, which was wanting to hide in the bathroom stall and like dig a hole and just inhabit the hole for the rest of my life. From a, a theological sense, um, the first time we encounter shame in the Bible is from the story of Adam and Eve. And it doesn't directly say, you know, they felt ashamed, but in the chapter before it says they were naked and they didn't feel any shame. And then we learned mm -hmm. they ate uh, from the tree and you kind of get this idea that they have this sense of shame. So in a sense, through their new way of looking uh, at the world and themselves and each other, they began to feel shame. Um, talk to us about the, the theological implications of shame. I always say that shame really does, like you said, start in the garden. Um, it starts with Adam and Eve having a perfect relationship with God, sinning, falling out of perfect relationship with him, and then expecting bad from him. So Adam and Eve have lived in this perfect world. They have only experienced love from God. They've only experienced kindness. They've only experienced provision. But as soon as they sin, their expectation is his wrath. Their expectation is that they have to hide, that they have to lie, um, that they can't come to him and say, hey, we did this thing. Um, he has to come and like pull it out of them, even though he knows what they did. But um, it just puts us out of right relationship with God, that feeling of shame, it causes us to isolate and to pull back from him. You know, we think um, about shame, we also think about sin, but you also wrote shame is often associated with wrongdoing, but the older I got, the more I realized that I didn't have to sin to feel shame. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah. I mean, I think even with my competition story, like it's not wrong to put on a dress backwards. It's just something that just happened to me because I was 14 and I was in a hurry and I wasn't paying attention to my tags. But that feeling in the moment was indecipherable from a feeling that I had had if I had done something that was actually actively wrong. It felt it felt the same. <laughs> it felt like I was wrong, like I was bad, like I was undeserving. And I think that so often because those feelings are so similar, we can kind of mistake them for each other. Um, again, you know, I thought that Ashley was going to ask me to write about biblical womanhood because I had so often spoken about the ways that as a young woman, um, these extra biblicals, extra biblical ideas of womanhood um, had kind of been superimposed on my life. And so this idea that a woman has to get married as soon as possible, has to be a stay-at-home mom, has to have as many children as possible, and then has to homeschool those kids. You know, not everybody has those specific ideals of womanhood that I grappled with, but we all have some ideas that are extra biblical, but can fill us with deep shame when we don't live up to them. It's interesting talking about um, shame. And in, in, I was thinking about this in, in reading the book and also thinking through how I've experienced in my life. Would you, would you say that um, it's a fair assessment that women experience shaming more than men? And if so, why do you, why do you think that's the case? I think that is true. And I think that um, Brene Brown talks about it so well, this idea that women do experience shame more. And it's because of 
this idea that we're supposed to be all things to all people at all times. Um, and unfortunately, culturally, um, that ideal falls more on women than on men. For instance, if my husband has to work and has to, my we both work from home, my little boy, my oldest will walk upstairs and interrupt his dad. His dad will say, hey, I'm busy. I'm working. You need to head back in the house with mom. Um, he does not feel shame about that. He's like, I'm working. If I don't work, then you don't need. So go back in the house with mom. If my son interrupts me and I say, oh, baby, I can't talk to you right now. I'm working immediately. I have to fight off a, oh, but I should be able to be there for him at all times in all ways. You were kind of hinting around this earlier and talking about, you know, potential of what this book could have been. What role do you think the church plays in shaming women? I think this ideology that we have so often fallen into where um, everything regarding gender roles puts so much pressure on women, you know, men are men. And this is not to say that men don't feel pressure. Like I've talked, I've been married for not a long time. We'll be nine years in October, but um, my husband and I have talked about, you know, his pressure to be a provider, his pressure to be the spiritual leader, his, the pressure to, you know, make really tough decisions, the pressure to, so he's felt that from the church. Um, but when we talk about the pressure that I have felt to be the perfect mother to my three children, the perfect wife to my husband, the guilt that I have over um, any work that takes me away from those things, the guilt that I have over a dirty house, the guilt that I have over, um, and I'm using the word guilt, but really it's shame. So the shame that I have over all of those things. Um, I, I mean, for me, it really did start in the church. It started with my um, upbringing and the ways that women were portrayed. You know, the Proverbs 31 woman, is portrayed not as a a type in wisdom literature, but as the checklist of things that we need to be achieving at all times. What are the most common forms uh, of shame people experience? You know, I'm, I'm just thinking through, for some people listening to this, maybe they haven't quite identified that that's the emotion they have experienced. Um, you know, so what would be some things that you can pinpoint for people to think through and for other people are like no worries I've got this I've felt shame my entire life you don't have to tell me what that is you <laughs> yeah. know yeah I I had a friend of mine who I think of as a very confident person and we had so many conversations about shame just with me coming to her and being like I'm feeling all these things and it took like several months of conversation of me just kind of bearing my heart to her not trying to convince her of anything but just kind of showing her like what it was to live with shame um she's like you know, all this time I thought that I was experiencing something else, but I think that it is shame. Um, I think a lot of times, so in the book, we talk about like three different ways that um, shame, that we kind of like deal with shame. And the reason I say we is because I was talking about all of these ways that we deal with shame and just kind of like going, I, I gave Ashley this huge list and she was like, okay, this is like three main categories that these things fall that these things fall into and so the first category is the like cast it off category which is like I never should have to feel shame ever for anything that I do I'm perfect I'm wonderful I'm amazing um and so when people when these people feel shame they immediately silence it with no I'm perfect well that entire process of like having to silence it and having to say no 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 no, no. I'm I'm good I'm all good I have everything together it's no problem 
that process is oftentimes a response to shame. That's what my friend was experiencing. Um, the second way is a way that my husband experiences shame, which is the work harder. So he feels shame and then he immediately is like, well, I'm going to work harder to silence it. I'm going to do the things that I have to do to make it be quiet. So I'm constantly going to be in a state of achievement so that when this feeling tries to interrupt me, I can tell it, no, 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 I'm, I'm working. I'm good. I'm working on it. It's fine. Um, that works for people, some people, for other people like me, it just makes us kind of like perish <laughs> under the weight. Um, and then the third way is a way that I think that I was very tempted to, especially in my younger years, um, was putting it on other people. So when I would feel shame, I would look at somebody else and find an excuse to shame them. So I'd be like, oh, for instance, if I walk home and I'm like, oh my gosh, my house is such a mess. This is so embarrassing. I feel so much shame. I should be better at cleaning up. I should be better at, I could either look at a house that's messier than mine and feel better, be like, ah, well, at least it's not as messy as X, Y, Z. Or I could take it in another direction and be like, well, I'm the kind of mom who spends time with her kids. And so moms who keep their houses super clean don't spend as much time with their kids as I do. It's a super catty way of dealing with shame, but I think a lot of people kind of experience it. And so sometimes, sometimes we can see the shame in the ways that we're coping with it. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. At the same time, all of our emotions are God-given. Uh, what do you think is the God-given design behind the emotion of shame? I think it's kind of a, a temperature that we can check. Um, when we feel shame, <clears throat> it's time to examine where it's coming from. Sometimes it's coming from a sin that we have committed and we need to get back in right relationship with God by repenting. Um, sometimes it's a warped version of guilt, right? It's the world of guilt that Paul talks about in first Corinthians. Um, sometimes it shows us that we are having an idol. That's something outside of God. That's something outside of Christ. We are putting something else on that same level and making our expectations for life and godliness, things that are outside of Christ. Um, and so I think that shame just kind of shows us when to take an internal check, when to turn to Christ. You know, I was also thinking um, shame can also be a helpful tool. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about Jackson, Mississippi, um, a city that's a, a microcosm of America's continued racism and, and countless forms, whether you know, the pushing of this capital police expansion or the clean water crisis and on and on and on. The church is implicated in much of that because, you know, we know in the American South, uh, the population and percentage as it comes to churchgoers, um, you know, in, in many regards, I think the last couple of years have been 
fruitful in the number of conversations that have taken place when it comes to these things. And yet so many people don't want to talk about it because there is a sense of shame that comes with having to talk about it. So how, how can shame maybe be a helpful tool? I think I would call it like less of a helpful tool and more of a, a healthy response. So, and what I mean by that is I always try to shy away from the helpful tool language because it's not a helpful tool for everybody. Some people, when they feel shame, they just pull back from the thing entirely, which is a lot of what I see. Most of my work is about talking about Black Christian history, Black Christian resistance to slavery specifically. Um, and a lot of times when I talk about that, people's automatic response is shame. For some people, that response goes to, oh my gosh, I know America's the best. I should never feel bad about this. Everybody does stuff. Black people had slaves too. Native Americans had slaves too. Everybody in the world has had slavery. Just stop talking about it. Um, and again, we see it in the second way, which is like, you know, the the helpful soul people who are like, yeah, no, this can make me do better. If I learn, if we know better, we do better. If I experience this, then I will be a better person. And we confuse shame with lament. Um, and then of course, the third way again is to cast off responsibility onto somebody else. I see all of those ways every single time that I talk about um, anything to do with race and justice in my other work. And so I think having a healthy outlook on shame, understanding that it is sending us a message, right? We're, we're feeling shame because of something external that has happened and kind of like examining what those messages are, I think is, is really helpful. So maybe what would be some um, practical advice for those that like, because again, they're confronted with shame. It's the feeling of, I don't want to deal with this or let's not talk about this. How do we get people to push past that initial feelings of shame in order to have productive conversations and in order for people to stop using it as a crutch to actually, you know, navigate these challenges? I think one of the huge ways to just kind of continue to push the example of talking about um, race and justice in our nation's history, I think one of the biggest ways is, is to check where our identity is, because a lot of Americans, our identity is in the goodness of our country, the perceived goodness of our founders, the perceived goodness of our laws, the perceived goodness of fill in the blank. And so when we come to terms with the ways that the church, and I'm saying little c church, not the church universal, but the church in America has been complicit in a lot of these things. We pull back because our identity is so tied into America as being this exceptional nation that can do no wrong. Um, and so I think so often shame, the shame that we have reveals that our identity has been misplaced. Um, our identity is ultimately in Jesus. You know, we're just passing through here. And so I think putting our identity into things eternal helps us to experience lament, right? To experience sadness. When sad things happen, we should feel lament and we should feel sad and we, and we should feel sorry. Um, but I think that the way to move past that is not to see, not to stop there, right? Not to stop there in this perception. Sorry, my little boy just walked in. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's like 40 don't, degrees outside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, don't um, feel shame that he walked in. It's a natural <laughs> part of this experience. He just is like, it's, he's like six and he's all bones. And yeah. he just walks out in his, <laughs> in his little tidy whiteies and it's 40 degrees outside. He's just like, hey, <laughs> like, go inside. You're going to catch pneumonia. 
Oh man. Do I have your permission to keep this in because it's priceless? Oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um he was so yeah. he was so pleased with himself. He's giving me this big thumbs up. I'm like, get out. I'm like waving at him, trying to keep my thought. <laughs> um Let's talk about the American Christian culture. You know, what's what's fashionable right now is big churches with celebrity pastors. You know, it's it's hit a new level when you know that one of the most followed uh, influencers on Instagram is is preachers and sneakers. It's tracking how many, uh, you know, celebrity pastors, have, you know, how much they dropped on a pair of shoes or, or an outfit. <laughs> do, do you think that the American church is sending the wrong message to its members? And, and do you think we are setting people up for shame by the way that we promote this brand of Christianity? I definitely think so. I think, I mean, the American church for, from my estimation, and I grew up um, Southern Baptist, you know, our entire denomination was founded because Southern slaveholders were being denied membership by certain churches who were like, you can't hold slaves and take communion. Sorry. Um, and so they were like, well, let's start our own denomination. And I, I think, and I'm part of the PCA now, which um, super similar story. And, I, you know, every denomination almost has a story like that, where for one reason or another, it just came to a decision of unity or disunity and slavery was really often at the forefront. And again, you know, that's, that's me putting it in very simple terms, but I think that so often we've kind of like just moved past that and we've moved into trying to be all things to all people without being repentant about our, our past and about being open about our growth and our, and our move forward. So I think that like so much of it is just lacking in self-awareness um, from the sneakers to the desire to stop having these conversations to this celebrity culture. It's so lacking in self-awareness. And when I talk to um, young people, you know, when I talk to, it's so funny because like I'm a millennial. So I was so used to being with young people for so long. And so I've just realized that like young people are not me anymore. They're the Gen Z people. Um, and so people will be like, I'll, I'll be following an influencer. And I'm like, oh, they're so awesome. But I'm like, yeah, I'm just, I just turned 23. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you are not the generation. You are not the young generation anymore. Um, but what I hear from young people, they're completely aware of the church's hypocrisy. Like they see yeah, very clearly. And our lack of self-awareness is so often our downfall. By the way, I do want to note that we millennials are still young. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what you were you were talking about earlier. Um, at least that's what I like to believe. We've we've got this um we've got this network within our denomination called Young Baptist. And uh, whoever's in leadership always continues to like expand the age range for it because they don't want to admit that they're not young anymore. Um, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about the shame culture of American Christianity. The the more conservative branch of Christianity seems to be the forefront of standing against members of the LGBTQ community and fighting against mm -hmm. abortion rights, while the more progressive mm -hmm. branch shames conservatives for their bigotry you know, and racism. How do you see? shame being used as a tool among Christians and and what would be a healthier shift away from these tactics it is so often used across the board um I am you know constantly watching one side or the other just completely utilize shame in order to make the other side 
feel bad. Um, and here's the thing. I, whenever I talk about shame, I always bring up the fact I'm a huge fan of Criminal Minds. I love Criminal Minds. And um, Spencer Reed has taught me through Criminal Minds that people who don't have shame are sociopaths, psychopaths, one or the other. People need shame. We need shame to keep society in check. If we don't have shame, then we have a lot of unchecked people going around and doing a lot of things that hurt people, that harm people, that harm others, um, putting their needs above all else. And so when it comes to um, common grace, shame is a huge stopgap that keeps people from doing a lot of crazy things. That said, as Christians, as believers who have the Holy Spirit, um, it's kind of a subpar stopgap. Like we have the very spirit of God indwelling us. And so I think that, I think that one of the major ways that we can kind of shift the conversation is to take more humble language, to take more prayerful language, to take more, um, you know, and again, I, I can, I can totally hear people being like, well, the prophet's did not sound very humble or prayerful when they were telling Israel about its oppression, about its hypocrisy, about what God was going to do to them. Um, and I think that using scripture's language and using scripture's attitude is great, but I also think that we need to be really careful not to turn into the Pharisees in our use of it um, and not use it to point out the problems out there when we're not consciously addressing the problems that are going on in our own camp. I ultimately uh, turn to Jesus, who presents us with countless opportunities to shame people, uh, whether those in sin, you know, the disease, the outcast, or public enemy. Yet Jesus stands against that religious onslaught of self-righteousness that wanted to push mm -hmm. these people out, condemn them, or kill them. How do we learn from Jesus about how to stand against shame? Anytime that Jesus used remotely shaming language, it was not towards the people who you would think that he was supposed to be shaming. He was turning it towards the Pharisees and he wasn't even pulling from like their deepest, darkest secrets. Um, he wasn't like going below the belt. It was just the very outward things that they were doing that were hypocritical to the God that they were professing. They were really loud. And Jesus was saying, I see you, <laughs> you're really loud you're walking around like whitewashed tombs. His concern was really for the least of these. And I think that in modeling that, we as believers need to realize that so often we're more of the Pharisees than the people that Jesus was drawing near to. Um, and so trying to have a heart attitude that understands that, it's really difficult, especially when we're looking at the media and we're getting really angry and we're seeing people who we believe or who are in reality, um, not treating others with love. It's such a hard balance then to show love, to show deference, to show understanding um, in our battle against these things. Um, I follow a lot of people on social media who have very different ideologies than I do. One of the ones that I follow um, is more progressive than I am. And I love how he is always trying to put the other side's argument in as gracious terms as possible. Um, I posted a video on my page of somebody who was just doing this very like right-wing historical analysis that was not very good historical analysis. And I always pick on right-wing folks because that's my background. So that's, again, people in our own camp. Um, and so I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so annoyed that people like these videos. I'm so annoyed that they post them. And my progressive friend was like, well, you know, who has time to like, 
go through the footnotes and do it. Like these people are just trying to survive. These people are just trying to make it through our economy. These people are just trying to, and was just really compassionate towards people who have very different beliefs than he has and said, you know, and again, he brought it back. Like that's, that's why I'm so grateful for you because you're doing the work to bring it down to the level and you're doing the work. To, and I was like, that's what a peacemaker looks like. That's what a peacemaker and not a shaming person looks like. A person who has completely different beliefs than the people that he's talking about, but is trying to be compassionate while at the same time holding them accountable for the ways that their beliefs harm other people. And it was a beautiful teaching moment for me, even as somebody who talks about shame all the time. At the end of the day, you're, you're calling people to recognize we have image issues. Um, what do you mean by that? And where are you trying to help reshape within your readers? So often our image of um, perfection for ourselves, whether it comes from the far right, the far left, the, the very middle, um, so often those images come from outside of the Bible and they come from outside of Jesus. And so I think correcting that image is just becoming, deciding to become more like Christ. And that happens from looking in his word, um, not looking around us and trying to impress people around us and, and trying to make sure that our camp approves of every single thing that we're doing. We need to be more concerned that Christ approves of the things that we're doing. And that's a hard road to travel. What's your hope for your readers and how do you imagine churches using this book? I always say my hope is that people would be set free um, because that was has been my biggest desire in my grappling with shame is to be set free um, from this constant cloud that hovers over me and tells me that I'm not good enough. Um, and so my hope for churches would be just that they echo that message, um, that they're able to use this book to encourage people in their congregation who really deal with shame. Um, and so often, you know, mine verges on self-loathing. Um, I have, have clinical depression and anxiety. Those are the two things that I deal with that just kind of like were war within me at all times, just kind of tell me a lot of lies about God and the way that he sees me and the way that he sees, um, the way that he sees the finished work of Christ in me. And so my hope is to combat those lies with the truth and to equip others to do the same. Our guest is Jasmine Holmes. The book is Never Cast Out. You can stay connected with Jasmine by visiting jasminelholmes.com. Let me do that again. Our guest is Jasmine Holmes. The book is Never Cast Out. You can stay connected with Jasmine by visiting jasminelholmes.com. Jasmine, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for calling us to rest a while in the arms of the one who has not only covered all our shame, but will never cast us out. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. 
Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.